Welcome to the Grace Life Church podcast. My name is Parker Smith, lead pastor of Grace Life Church, located in Decatur, Alabama. Our prayer is that the sermon you're about to hear will help you grow in your understanding of God's Word, point you to the person of Jesus Christ, and encourage you to live for the glory of God. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. and praise team and I have found that over time sometimes we just always go back to what's familiar and so often that comes in the form of of songs and I just was thinking as we were singing those songs just how familiar and how good it is to to be reminded of the grace of God and the goodness of God and the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. And I just love hymnody. I love singing hymns. And so I appreciate Jeff and the praise team leading us and singing those hymns. And just by word of just encouragement to you and the church, if you are, would like to hear more of modern hymnody, and, and there's certainly a lot of different artists that you can listen to, but I would encourage you to look up someone like Keith and Kristen Getty and listen to Getty worship. I would encourage you to listen to Sovereign Grace music and encourage you to listen to um, Aaron Keyes and Matt Papa and Matt Boswell and so many um, just refreshing uh, songs that they give that are reminders of the faithfulness of God, of the goodness of God, the majesty of God, and they write them in the hymn form. And I have found that that is such a way to encourage the church and the saints, and to be reminded of a lot of doctrine, a lot of truth, but most of all, be pointed to Christ. And so I just wanted to say that this morning in, in light of what we just sang, I'm grateful for that. And um, But if you have your Bibles, I would ask that you would turn with me to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at um, a passage of Scripture this morning. We'll be back in the book of Philippians, Lord willing, next week. But the book of Ephesians is, is a heavy-hitting book and a lot of doctrine that's, that's taught there. And so we're going to brush up against that and hopefully brush up against some practical applications, not just for you, but also the life of the church. But the text that we see this morning really is just an intersection of so many truths that are now coming to a, to a head, if you will. So many biblical ideas, so many historical junctures all coming together. And honestly, this sermon could go in a lot of different directions in terms of its application, in terms of its, of its applying to you and your life. And there is no way that in our time this morning that we will be able to cover everything that is here within this text. And Paul, just continually through the book of Ephesians, especially in this first chapter, just gives us one powerful truth after another powerful truth after another powerful truth over and over and over again, just to give you a glimpse of that of an idea of what I'm speaking about, your English translation, more than likely, of these nine verses, it may break it down into two sentences, maybe three sentences or whatnot, but in the Greek, it is all one long sentence with a lot of commas and a lot of phrases, and at every comma and at every phrase, there is a world of theology and application to unpack, and so there is no way that I'll be able to do that this morning in just the short time that we have together, but I do think it's fitting and it's always proper, especially in a standalone sermon or a one-off sermon to 
brush up on the context of what Paul is speaking to or the biblical author would be speaking about. And here in the book of Ephesians, it's helpful to understand the context of the church at Ephesus and at least zero in on what is the primary emphasis that's going on here. Paul is the apostle that has written this letter to the church. He is at this time likely in a Roman prison, likely under house arrest. And in this house arrest, he would be able to receive visitors often. Of those visitors would be people like Luke. They would be people like Aristarchus. It would be people like Timothy who would come alongside to see Paul and to encourage him Others like Epaphras and would help keep Paul informed about what's going on in the life of the church and the situation that's now unfolding in these, many of these churches that he helped plant. And they would often inform him to the things that God was doing so that he could rejoice and praise God. But he would also, they would also give him word of potential conflicts and of potential a theological term heresies or that is, that is contrary to truth and the word of God. And specifically, there was one heresy that was brewing at this time at the church at Colossae. It had to do what's known as the Colossian heresy or, or the Colossian heresy that's, that's really a, a form of Gnosticism and a distortion of the deity of Christ. And it was beginning to grow at the church at Colossae and was beginning to affect that church, but also had the potential to affect other churches as well. And another one of Paul's friends visited him at this time. His name was Tychicus. And he was a native of Ephesus. And there as he was spending time with Paul, he was likely about to depart to the province of Asia. And Paul needed to send word to the church at Colossae. And meanwhile, as he thought about his circumstances, he knew of a friend, Onesimus, who was a runaway slave who had now professed Christ, but was also in danger from his master for defrauding him. His name was Philemon. And so taking advantage of all the opportunity at hand, Paul writes three letters. He writes one to the church at Colossae. He writes another to Philemon. And he addresses specific issues that he is wanting to speak to them about. But he also writes a third letter. And he writes a third letter to the church at Ephesus. And he desires to deliver all of them by the hand of Tychicus. And in the book of Ephesians, Paul is not specifically addressing just one issue. He's rather speaking in generalities. He's rather talking about broad implications of the good news of Jesus. You could say it this way. In the book of Ephesians, Paul was painting with a very broad brush. And it's extremely rich and practical, the truth that he brings out. But Paul... While he was in Ephesus, there was a lot that happened to him while he was there. You might be reminded of that in the book of Acts chapter 19 and 20 of the feel and the rhythm and the code of the city, if you will. If you just by way of reminder, Paul had a very trying time while he was there bringing the believers into maturity and helping them to walk in the power of the Spirit. There was instead just this fascination with mystery and a fascination with divinations and a fascination with all types of, of miraculous powers, if you will, among several people. That's why they would come to Paul. They would want to, they would want the handkerchiefs that Paul had. If they could just touch them. You saw even the sons of Sceva, these Jewish exorcists that wanted the power 
that they thought that Paul had. And so they come and try to do an exorcist, exorcism and the demons say to them and say, Jesus, I know, and Paul I've heard of, but who are you? And, and many people in this city were turning to the practice of magic arts, and they were, it was deeply embedded in a culture of divination. There was one man named Demetrius who was there. He was a silversmith to the shrine of Artemis, a fertility goddess. And he gets upset when he sees his business is losing profit. And so in an attempt to try to save his business, he invokes a riot in the city and all the people begin to cry out, just hear this chant in this city of, and kind of gives you a glimpse of what's going on here in this location. They begin crying out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Everything about this city in the, in the, in the city of Ephesus, everything about it was pointing toward power and strength and might and control. Rome would be trying to exercise their authority, their rule, their reign in many areas. Further, the goddess Artemis would try to grip the hearts of the people of the city and the people would say, who can contend with the great Artemis? This entire world in Ephesus was filled with principalities and powers. Powers that are at work in this present age, Paul would say in Ephesians 2. And so Paul opens up this letter to the church at Ephesus, to the church in this city, and he says, I have an answer to you. That's why Paul begins in the way that he does with the sovereignty and power of God. When you read Ephesians chapter 1, the language here is absolutely explosive. And Paul means to combat the culture and the mindset of the city that he's writing to. And reminding Christians of the God whom they serve, the God whom they worship. And he would say to them, and he would say to us, if you want to talk about power, then I'll show you power. If you want to talk about might, I'll show you might. If you want to talk about sovereignty and rule and reign, I will show you sovereignty, rule and reign. And behold, his name is Christ Jesus. That's Paul's point in Ephesians and Ephesians chapter 1. And that's his point here in this text about the power of God. And I would invite you to stand as we read together out of the honor and reverence of God's word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. The Apostle Paul says this, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards those of us who believe." according to the working of his great might, that he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and he has gave him his head over all things to the church 
which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, would you say amen? Let's pray together. Father, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? God, would you go before us? Would you go before this preacher? God, would you make a way? Would your spirit illumine the truth of this text and the truth of your word to our hearts? And may we believe it in faith and apply it to our lives and may we be changed. Father, we'll thank you for all that you do in our lives and in your church. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I want to call your attention to a few points this morning, all of which have to do with power. The first of which is this, God's power to save. In verses 15 through 19, Paul begins by expressing his attitude and prayer for the Ephesian believers. And he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks to you, to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. He continues, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Paul says here in this text, Paul says, I thank God for you, and I thank God that God saved you. I thank God that He opened up your eyes to the beauty of Christ, that He has opened up your eyes for you to see the need of a Redeemer, the need for a Savior. For if you did not have Christ open up your eyes, you would still be looking through a veil. You would still be lost. Had God not opened up your eyes, you would not be saved. Listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, and he says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, why is that? Why is the gospel veiled? In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds and hearts of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. In other words, before you were saved, there was a hindrance. There was a spiritual hindrance, if you will, that kept you separated from God and Christ. And it wasn't anything that you could desire or even knew that you needed to desire to change or to fix. Because of you being in unbelief, you are blind. You are held captive. You were in bondage to sin and you were enslaved to the enemy and you were kept from seeing the beauty of the gospel and your need for Jesus. And this is why, this is why the gospel can be preached hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times and someone not respond. How the same message can go forth in a room and some believe and some don't because they're blinded because of sin. And what has to take place is a miracle of God to open up the hearts and minds of an unbeliever, someone who is perishing, to help them see the beauty of Christ and His gospel. And they respond in repentance and faith. Because of our blindness, because the God of this age was holding non-believers and is holding non-believers captive and in blindness. They were in a state of perishing. And if you're in Christ this morning, you were in a state of perishing until God came in power. Until God 
opened up your eyes to see the beauty of Christ and his gospel, and he rescued you. Apart from any work that you could ever do, in total grace, God rescued you. He redeemed you. He saved you. And he opened up your eyes that was blinded from the enemy. God did that. That means that you weren't smart enough to figure it out. It means that you weren't skilled enough to maneuver your way towards God's love. There wasn't anything you could do. No, beloved, you were dead. You were blind. You were lost. You were hopeless. You were captive. But God saved you. God, in power, saved you. And this is why when Paul begins in Ephesians, the language in Ephesians 1 is absolutely explosive. He doesn't want you to miss this reality. He doesn't want you to miss the power of God. Look at Ephesians 1, 3 through 13. Blessed be the God and our Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for the adoption of sons to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will and to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has lavished upon us in the beloved. In him we have the redemption through, the, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purposes, which he set forth in Christ. It was a plan, he says, for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and on earth, and in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory in him also. You, when you heard of the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance or our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. Paul does not want you to miss the reality of what God has done. God did this. God did it. Salvation is not a work of me, and it wasn't a work of my glory. It was a work of God, and it is a work of his glory. That's why Paul would say in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved, and that through faith, it is not your own doing, but is the gift of God. God saved you. God did it. And Paul, by bringing this to our attention, he says, I don't want you to think for one moment that anybody else has that authority, that anybody else has that kind of power, that anybody else is sovereign, can rule and reign and do what God can do. Not Rome, not Artemis, and not you. We can't hold a drop in the bucket to the sovereignty, the rule, and the reign, and the power of God. And Paul says, I don't want you to miss it. I don't want you to miss the reality, and I don't want you to gloss over it and attribute 
anything else to God's saving work in you except for God and God alone. It was God who did it. It was God who does it. And don't try to rob God of His salvation. It wasn't the work of you. And it's not about your glory. And so why in the world would you want to insert anything to that that could diminish the power of God in salvation? And why in the world would you want to insert anything that would attribute any type of glory or ascribe any type of majesty to anyone other than the one who saved you and the only one who can? And his name is Jesus Christ. And for those that are here this morning that are not a believer and you've never trusted Christ for salvation, may I implore you this morning that you not leave here until you consider the majesty of God, until you consider the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the power of God, the sovereignty of God, and recognize that you were held captive and you were enslaved to sin and that you're enslaved to the enemy, that you're blind, that you're lost, that you are dead in sin, and your only hope is not putting it in yourself or not putting it in your parents, or not putting it in your church attendance, it's not putting it in anything that you do. My encouragement to you this morning is that you would recognize that you're dead in your sin and that you would look to the only one who can save you. His name is Jesus Christ. And by faith, and by faith, and only by faith, you would cry out to God and say, God, would you be merciful to me, a sinner? And it is only the power of God that can save us and that you would look to Christ this morning and not to yourself and say, God, you are powerful. You can save and ask God to save you. God's power to save us, and you see God's work within us that he continues in verses 18 and 19 that you may know the hope to which he has called, you have been called. That God hasn't just saved you, beloved. He is continuing to work within you. And Paul works through this and said, I want you to know the hope. I want you to have assurance of what God has called you to. I want you to know the inheritance that is yours in Christ. I want you to know that God is actively at work in you, his power because of your belief and the regeneration that he has bought. And he says, notice the language of this glorious inheritance, the immeasurable greatness, his power towards you and in great might, God's work, God's power, thank God, does not end with God just saving you. But God continues to work in power through His Spirit and His Word at work within you. Point number two, I want you to see God's power to resurrect. Look at verses 19 through 22. He says, All of this was according to the working of His great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has given to him as head over all things to the church. The Apostle Paul is going straight for the jugular here to destroy any argument, any misconception, to ascribe any type of power to anyone other than Jesus Christ. 
And Paul says the great might and the power of God can be seen and was displayed for the world to see when he raised Jesus from the dead. No one claiming to be the Messiah had ever been resurrected, and yet Jesus has been raised, and God raised him from the dead, and no one has ever seen that type of power. And not only has he been raised, but further, Paul says, that he has been now seated in the heavenly places, far above all rule and dominion and authority. Okay, you can stop now, the Apostle Paul. I think we're getting just a glimpse of your point, but he continues that he's over all rule, power, dominion, over every name. Okay, I think we get it. No, you don't get it yet. He's, he's above every name in this age and in the one to come. Did I miss anything? Paul would say, no, he is sovereign and his power is on display. Paul wants to make it crystal clear who is in charge. Jesus has not only been raised... He is not only in the heavens, but he is ruling and he is reigning above everything and every name on earth. And in verse 22, the Apostle Paul quotes from Psalm 8. That's why we read that as our call to worship this morning, which was a primary psalm and understanding to the early church of the rule and the kingship of Christ. He says in verse 6 that you had made him a little lower than the angels and heavenly beings. You have crowned him with honor and with glory. You have given him dominion over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet. The psalmist declares the same thing that Paul is declaring, that everything is under the lordship of Christ. And the resurrection of Jesus, the God-man, is the hinge on which the entire New Testament in Christianity would swing. Paul would say, I want you to realize what God has declared through Jesus and through raising him from the dead. God has solidified everything that he has claimed to be is true, that his message was true. He's no false Messiah. He's no would-be Messiah. No, he is and he was and he is the real deal. And because everything now is under his lordship, he is now governing and ruling this world and all things. And this reality was the bedrock of everything that the church believed. And it had massive implications for the way that they lived their life. This is why Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15 of how important the resurrection is. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then all of this is futile. If Christ has not been raised, Paul would say, my preaching is in vain. If, Paul, if Christ has not been raised, he says, your, your belief is in vain. Paul would say, if Christ has not been raised... I'm actually misrepresenting God. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sin. If Christ has not been raised, we're wasting our time here. If Christ has not been raised, we're the most to be pitied above all people. But he concludes to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised. And because the resurrection is true, Everything about the life of a Christian changes. Everything in your life has now changed because of what Christ has done through the power of his resurrection. Because he is sovereign, because he is ruling and reigning and above everything, he is now 
in control of all things and everything is subject to him and the resurrection is true and because it's true, it changes everything. Just read the New Testament. Look and see and be reminded of the awe of God and the movement of God in the book of Acts, the power of him working through his redeemed people and they are living in the reality of the resurrection King Jesus and it was the anchor of everything that they believed and it had massive implications for the way that they lived their life. It was the absolute bedrock of their faith. It was the bedrock of their community of faith. It was the bedrock of everything that they did. And my concern is that the church's day, church today has shifted from the bedrock of the resurrection and we have settled for lesser things to motivate us. We've settled for lesser things than the resurrection to place our hope in and to build a church upon. My concern is that you look around at churches today and they would say, well, you need savvy programming. You look around at so many churches today and they say, well, you need good music. Well, you look around at many churches today and they say, well, you need some good lights. You need a polished preacher. You need slick marketing. None of those things, none of them can spark a movement of God. And none of them have the power of Christ and his resurrection. But note this, every single one of them can begin to turn the church into a group of consumers. And instead of living on mission, begin to turn inward. And instead of being excited about the one truth, the one hope that we have, namely the resurrection of Christ, we begin pursuing hope in lesser things. <laughs> May it never be. And the culture within the church today is that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus one Sunday a year. Easter Sunday to say that he is risen, he is risen indeed, and yes, and amen, and just as risen, and just as alive, 51 other weeks every single Sunday when the church meets. The reality of the resurrection, the reality of what Christ has done, he is alive, and because he is alive, nothing should take greater priority than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when we gather and when we meet every single week on the Lord's day in the Lord's house with the Lord's people, we come with one hope and with one declaration to say that Christ is risen. He is risen today and he is alive. And my hope is in the resurrected Christ. And so I want to preach about Christ. I want to sing about Christ. I want to read about Christ. I want to be encouraged in Christ. I want to be fueled and passionate in love with Christ. Point me to Jesus. Point me to the resurrection of Christ, preacher. Point me to the person and work of Christ, church. He is our hope. He is what we need. He is our, he is our satisfaction. He is our portion. And because of the resurrection, everything about our life changes. Because of the resurrection, everything about life in the church changes. And you see that in point number three, God's power in us and through us, verses 21 through 23. He says, It's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills 
all in all. Paul has been building and he's continuing to build to say the logic of his argument is this, that if Christ has powerfully saved you and if you're saved, that's got to be true. It's the only way that you're saved. Then that also means that he is continually now at work within you. And because he is supreme and he is risen from the dead, he is now ruling, he is reigning in this world and everything is under his authority. And so Jesus is in authoritative position above everything. And he is the head of his church. That is his ecclesia. The word means a called out assembly. They are his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul is saying that this King Jesus, who is the head of the church, is now sending his church as the hands and feet of Jesus into the world now to continue in the mission and continue in the task that God has given to them. In other words, the resurrection has corporate implications. The church is not just some institution. It's not something that's just to be filled with programs and processes and procedures and structures. It's not something to just be protected and kept. No, the church is a living organism that is under the rule and reign and the reality of the resurrected Jesus who is to be moving out in mission in the world, carrying the banner of Christ and proclaiming Jesus has been raised and extending his rule, his reign, his sovereignty in the whole world. To say that everything has been changed, death has been defeated, hope has come through Christ, salvation can be found in Christ. And we go now as the body of Christ through whom God fills all and all. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 1 that he is the head of the body, his church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from among the dead and everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his, Christ, of his cross. And if Christ is our head and we are the body, Christ is the only one who can fill us and fill all in all. And so Jesus now must go forth. And how will he go forth? Paul's argument is that Christ continues forth through his body, that is his church who are living and continuing to, to, to carry the banner of Christ, who are going not in their own power, not in their own strength, but in the power of Christ at work within us. This is why Paul would say in the book of Colossians as well that Christ in you is the hope of glory, that we are the body of Christ. And what a privilege it is to carry the missions of God's work into the world, to be involved in the extension of the kingdom of God and the rule and reign of Jesus and what God is doing in this world, the fullness of him who fills all in all. We are his bride, the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. And don't take it lightly. We have a resurrected Lord, a resurrected Savior. And he says, I have now sent you into this world to be the extension and the rule and reign of Christ and I am sovereign over everything and so you go you go in the power of Christ the fullness of his body the fullness of him who fills all in all that is King Jesus who is ruling and reigning and is powerfully at work within you he is also powerfully at work within the life of his church and this all powerful sovereign lord of all is now extending his rule and reign through his redeemed people 
and it's called his church. And so what does that mean for us? It means everything. Paul is declaring for us today that if Christ is in you, and your resurrected king, he has all authority and all sovereignty over everything. His aim in your life is for us to be his body and to move forward in mission, filling the whole world with the good news of Jesus Christ. Is that not what the early church did in the book of Acts? Is that not what the entire Christian hope is built upon of the body of Christ continuing and going in the world and God's kingdom moving forward through his body and the message going forth through his people that for us, that all of our time, that all of our energy, that all of our money and our resources and our margin should be pointed with the trajectory of advancing the kingdom of God to say, as we've said it here, I want the gospel to advance for God's glory. And we awake to this reality that God's, as God's redeemed people, God is active. He is at work in us and through us, and He is filling all of us in Christ through the working of His power and through His people, that is the church. And so my question for us and my question for you is how would your life begin to look differently if you saw your life through the lens of God's work and power within you and within his church. How would living as a member of the body of Christ under the rule and reign of Jesus, who is risen from the dead, who is the head of his church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, how might having that understanding in your daily living, how might it change the way that when you look across your driveway and see your neighbor in darkness and without Christ, how might it change the way that you view and interact with them? Would you see it as an opportunity to love them well and to invite them in? Or will you just be content with a distant wave and a superficial politeness? How would living as a member of the body of Christ under the rule and reign of Jesus, who is risen from the dead, who is the head of his church, his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all, how might it change the way that you interact with your waiter or your waitress because they ruin your relaxing evening out with your family? Would you get disgusted with them and speak a word of harsh rebuke towards them? Or would instead, would you be gracious towards them and kind towards them because God has been gracious and kind towards you? How would living as a member of the body of Christ under the rule and reign of Jesus, who is risen from the dead, who is the head of his church, his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all, how might it change the way that you view your job and the people that you work with? Would you continue to see them as an incredible opportunity to speak the truth to them and to proclaim Christ to them and remind them of the goodness of God towards them and the common grace that he has, but also the particular grace to save them? Or would you just see them as people that you spend most of your day with because you have to go to a job? How might it change the way that you interact and and invest in those in your ball fields and your hobbies? Would you just see it as God aligning you with lives and different people so that you can be a blessing to them, so that you can pour into them, so that you can remind them of the grace of God? Or would, would you just continue to see them as some people that you exercise your hobbies with? How would living as the member of the body of Christ under the rule and reign of Jesus, who is risen from the dead, who is the head of the church, his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all, how might it change the way that you view margin in your life? 
Would you see it as God's grace to you and an opportunity to invest in others? Or would you just continually numb yourself to social media and to Netflix and the evening news? How might understanding this reality change the way that you invest in other people? How might it change the way that you see flaw? How might it change the way that you give grace? How would living as a member of the body of Christ under the rule and reign of Jesus, who is risen from the dead, is the head of his church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, how might it change the way of your attitude towards people that you see walking in sin? Would you immediately judge them and condemn them or would you be brokenhearted for them and recognize that they know not the hope of Christ and be willing and have the courage and the boldness to speak the love of Christ to them? How would living under the, as a member of the body of Christ under the rule and reign of Jesus who is risen from the dead as the head of the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, how might it change the way that you interact with people that have hurt you? Would you continue to be bitter and frustrated and angry? Or would you extend to them the same grace that you have received? How might it change the way that you view the blessing that God has given you? Your house, your finances, would you see them as something, as means of blessing others and for the glory of God, or would you see them as something to be protected and kept at all costs? How would living as a member of the body of Christ under the rule and reign of Jesus, as the head of the church who has risen from the dead, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all, how might it interact, might it change the interactions of the people who have hurt you, even in the church? to see an opportunity to extend grace or would you rather hold grudge and wallow in your own self-righteousness? How might it change life together in the local church to recognize and see that God has placed other Christians around you to edify you, to grow you, to sharpen you as iron sharpens iron, to be committed, to be in partnership with, to be in fellowship with, to be in membership with His church? Or, I don't need that. If the resurrection's true, and it's true, it changes everything. Everything about our life changes because of Christ being risen from the dead. His power, that He's powerfully worked in you. The power that He continually works within you through His Spirit, through His Word, through His Son. The power that is now active in the life of His local church, in His body. And I'll tell you how it changes your life in recognizing the reality of the resurrection and the power of God. Everything has changed. Everything has changed because Christ is reigning. Christ is authoritative. And what your aim and our mission should be in life is to fill every space, Paul says. Fill all in all with Jesus. And to say, I want Christ to be inserted in everything. His love, his message, his hope, his gospel, his grace, his mercy... He's alive. And because he's alive, he is sovereign and he is in control. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. And he feels all in all. And so many, we just think it's just, isn't it just about coming to church one Sunday? Isn't it just about showing up? And it is. The gathering of the saints is so important. Worshiping on the Lord's day in the Lord's house with the Lord's people. But there is so much more that God has called us to.
that the resurrection would change everything. And beloved, that we wouldn't just go with a message, though that is important, but we would also come with a mission that God has called us to and a passion to live for his glory and to proclaim the gospel and to live the gospel in boldness in our world. God's power to save you. Maybe you're here this morning and for the first time in your life, you recognize that there is a king and it's not you. There is a sovereign who wears a crown and it's not you. And maybe today in humility that you would be willing to set aside your righteousness and your crown and your authority and your sovereignty and say, I'm not in control. And I have not the power to save anyone. And maybe today that you would respond in a posture of humility and repentance and faith. My invitation to you is just that, to implore you to repent and believe the gospel. The power of the resurrection, the victorious Lord of all is now living and reigning and everything is under his lordship. And God's power in and through us in his local church. And may we at Grace Life Church be a people that seeks to extend the rule and reign of Christ in every space. To say that God has graciously changed us. God has graciously redeemed us. He has saved us. He has done a marvelous work in us. And our zeal, our passion is for the one who has saved us. Our zeal and passion is to further his kingdom, his gospel, and to advance the gospel for his glory and not mine. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Grace Life Church podcast. If you would like more information or have questions about Grace Life Church, please email us at gracelifedecatur at gmail.com or find us on Facebook by searching Grace Life Church Decatur. And if you live in the Decatur area, we would love for you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. Until next time on the Grace Life Church podcast.